You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast. This week we're discussing Christopher Nolan's 2014 sci-fi epic, Interstellar. They're coming to get you, Barbara. We're on a mission from God. I'll buy that for a dollar! Welcome to the party, pal! Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Man's got to know his limitations. And they mostly come at night. Mostly. Let's put a smile on that face. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smells like... Victory. This sort of thing has cropped up before. And it has always been due to human error. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian. This is Jeremy. Howdy. All right. So we're going to talk Interstellar. We're going to go ahead and just jump right into this. We're going to go through spoilers. So you have been warned on that front. Now, I'm, I'm going to assume most people have already seen this. Yeah, I think most people that, that want to see it have already seen it. Yeah, by the box office numbers, I would say that's probably true. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Made $188 million domestically. Not bad. No, uh, I think it's 670-something million worldwide. So, yeah, no, no, it, it, it did pretty good And it good sold business. some corn. It, <laughs> that, is, that is true. Uh, there is there's a farm. There's corn that's planted. Uh, now, they, they planted that for the production, and then they later sold it and made a, made some profit off of it. At least at least paid for planting the corn. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm I think they actually made, made they actually made some money. Now I'm going to start by saying that of the two of us, I have been in love with Interstellar the longest. We went to see it in the IMAX theater, but the city we live in does not have an IMAX screen. No, it does so not. So we have to drive three hours. Three hours is it, what we had to drive. actually like three hours and 30 minutes, but that's why we missed the first 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, the first time. And on top of that, the projection was a little soft. It was. It was a little, it was a little out of focus. Now, when we came out of the movie, somebody we, was, we were with wasn't a big fan of the movie. I honestly, I knew I liked it. I had no idea past that. Like the movie just was too much information in my brain. I think I was speechless. There's a lot going on in the film. For about, for about an hour after seeing it, which I find interesting. You had the same when you went and saw Nolan's The Dark Knight. You told me that after you left the theater, you you. You had this strange feeling of you didn't know what your opinion was. Well, yeah, I, I, oh man, dude, walking out of the dark night was it was something that was really special because I wasn't expecting that film to be that good. I was kind of expecting that film to be, I was expecting it to be Batman Begins, the sequel, and I thought he really brought that up a notch. Uh, I did not feel that way about Interstellar. You know, the Dark Knight, like I wanted to see that again. You know, I didn't know exactly where I stood. I didn't know whether I was like, man, is this really that good? Or am I making it out in my right. head to be something more than it really is? Interstellar, I just did not. My, most of my problems, I would say all my problems come from the last last 40 minutes or so of the movie. And definitely the last 10 minutes. And then I went and saw it two days later and totally fell in love with it. How many times did you see this movie in the theater, dude? Go on. I saw it six times in the theater. Six times. Oh I my God. totally 
fell in love with this film. And part of it is the ambition behind everything that's going into it. And and to me, it's very entertaining. I, I was I was having a conversation with somebody just yesterday that who granted I'm not as critical as some people with films. I mean, to me, films are supposed to be entertaining. Um, and I think the person I was talking, I'm not going to name him. We'll just call him Bob. Bob? Um, All right, Bob. Bob I like was Bob. complaining about Interstellar. And what he was complaining about was like, well, well, we needed more futuristic cars at the front of the movie. And we well, needed... I don't think that. I think we that's needed missing a, the point of the film, though. I, I do, too. I think that's wanting to be critical for critical sake. And I don't know, it just it it touches something in me every time I see it. Well, I think I think Bob's uh reaction to the film is kind of similar to my first reaction because I was getting a little hung up and a little nitpicky because it wasn't the film that I wanted. You know, I I, I guess I wanted it to be a little bit more ambiguous and a little bit more mysterious with some of the things, and it's not. It's 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 there's not a lot of mystery to <laughs> too many of the elements. There's some, but most of it's pretty spelled out. And I I don't know if I like that in my sci-fi. I like I I, I like to be able to think a little bit more and digest it a little bit more. And how much of that's not the film's fault. Now, how much of the um of it explaining itself or maybe maybe even the right word would be it's commercialism versus ambiguity do you think is a holdover from when steven spielberg was going to do it as opposed to like nolan coming in from the very beginning oh man i i don't know now i know that uh that treatment got released of Nolan's, uh, Jonathan Nolan, I should say, which Nolan we're talking about here. Uh, one that jo- sounds American. Uh, yes, <laughs> that that is weird. We saw the uh, behind the scenes, and Jonathan Nolan has got an American accent, and Christopher Nolan's speaking in British accent. It's, it is like, well, these two are brothers. It's kind of weird. But um, yeah, his original script was very different. And you know, Spielberg, it was originally, I think, he brought Jonathan Nolan on board, and then he left the project when... Uh, DreamWorks and Paramount broke up, and then that's when Christopher Nolan came on board. But uh, yeah, I, w- I think it was it was pretty different from some of the things that I can remember. Now I remember because I mean I, I I'm a huge Spielberg fan, so I remember seeing on you know upcoming Spielberg directorial efforts Interstellar, and then I remember him backing out and Nolan coming in and. I remember, you know, the the industry talk of Nolan's making changes and Well when he came on board though, I that's when I first got excited about this project. That's when I first actually started paying attention to this project is when he got on board. I think it was everybody's like most anticip- one of their most anticipated movies of two thousand fourteen. I it was mine. I I can't think of anything I was looking forward to more. I, I always get excited when Christopher Nolan does a project. I like all his movies. So there's not a film, I think, um, including this one, that's bad. Like, he does not make bad movies. No. And I think, like, you know, personally, I liked seeing Nolan reach out and do do some different stuff. And the man's impressive with what he shoots and how he puts it together. That's, yeah, I've got much, much love for Interstellar. Man, you just want to, let's, you just want to go through it? 
scene by scene, talk about some things. Lead the way. A little late, Coop. Yeah, we had a flag. It's an Indian surveillance drone. Solar sails power an entire farm. What'd you do, Murph? Oh, she didn't do nothing. Murphy's law. You're a well-educated man, Coop. And a trained pilot. And an engineer. The world doesn't need any more engineers. We didn't run out of planes and television sets. We ran out of food. Dad, why did you name me after something that's bad? Well, we didn't. Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law doesn't mean that something bad will happen. It means that whatever can happen will happen. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us. Now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. And this is the mission we were trained for. I've got kids, Professor. Get out there and save them. Open up in the film. The film starts with uh, recalling like Dust Bowl imagery, and yeah. and some. We get Ellen Burstein talking about how everyone's a f- farmer, right? We get the idea. We start doing some world building where we get the idea that there was some problems, a shortage of food, and then all of a sudden this blight came along, and this is killing all the crops. And I'm not 100% sure how that relates to the dust, if that's because they're just over-farming, or is the blight causing that? They don't really ever say. Which, it, you know, probably if we knew something about farming, we would. It, this would be an obvious answer, but... Well, the movie never tells us. The, the only thing I know about farming is my grandfather had a farm, and I spent the night there a few times. I, I think in my brain, I kind of built the the idea that um, at some point, the world was overpopulated, and there wasn't enough food, and plants started dying. And then once all the people started dying, and the, you, it's obviously now there's like a one-world consolidated government idea, and you're either going to be a farmer or an engineer. Um, and by all the plants dying and not enough food being grown, there was more dust in the air, which started then letting the blight kill I'm making this up in my head. I I mean, yes, the movie does state that like there's a kind of a government entity, the, the former USA. There's some hints that a little history has been rewritten. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We find um, we find out they think the moon landing is fake. She brought this in to show the other students the section on the lunar landings. Yeah, this is one of my old textbooks. She always loved the pictures. It's an old federal textbook. We've replaced them with the corrected versions. Corrected? Explaining how the Apollo missions were fake to bankrupt the Soviet Union. You don't believe we went to the moon? I believe it was a brilliant piece of propaganda that the Soviets bankrupted themselves, pouring resources into rockets and other useless machines. Useless machines? And if we don't want a repeat of the excess and wastefulness of the 20th century, then we need to teach our kids about this planet, not tales of leaving it. And one of those useless machines they used to make was called an MRI. 
And if we had any of those left, the doctors would have been able to find the cyst in my wife's brain before she died instead of afterwards. And then she'd have been the one sitting there listening to this instead of me, which had been a good thing because she was always the, the calmer one. It's very much trying to like the opposite of the technology boom we're having now. This is like pretty much, we don't want a technology boom. We want a food boom. And the dust imagery is really cool. Yeah. I, I really like that. Uh, they call out where they're, they're talking about how they have to put their, their bowls upside down just so they don't get dust in their food. Like there's, even There's nice little touches like yeah, that. Yeah, even like if you notice, they like put napkins and stuff over their drinks. So that, yeah. And I could easily, easily imagine what it would like to be like to live in this world. And it wasn't like a far stretch. Like some science fiction films, you're you're like it. It's so foreign that there's no way you can relate to it. Well, I think he does a good job. He, he makes it because we, you know, we had we had the Dust Bowl and everything. So his like version of the apocalypse is is not really that far like removed. You know, yeah, it's not. It's something that we could actually imagine. It's not and this, like. And this know, is what I was talking to Bob with. Is I think he was wanting more of a sci-fi element like one of his complaints is that it's the blight is not explained see that's the, what i love i, love I do too i mean see, i think that's great and and to me it's like that's not the point of the film like it really doesn't matter what's causing the blight you just need to know that the blight's there and people are going to starve if they can't find a new place for people to live i wish the film did this more often where it would just trust that we would go along with it. The audience, we're gonna go, we're gonna just go through this, and it's not a problem. We see the world that we're in, and we get introduced to our main character Cooper, who is having a dream of wrecking his spacecraft. Yeah, he obviously was NASA in the last stages of public NASA. Yeah, before they maybe canceled it. Hmm, I don't know. Publicly closed it down. <laughs> Ooh, let's listen on and find out more. Uh, let's. I'll never do that again. Um, <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we we get that, and then Murphy Murphy comes into his room. His daughter mentions it, 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 the at ghost. this time she's she's ten years old. Is she? T- yeah, okay. I was. Is she ten? Yeah. When the movie starts, she's ten. Yeah. So she comes in. She mentions the ghost in her room. Right, because there's books falling off of her shelf. Something is knocking books off of her shelf. Uh, you know, there's a cool scene where they go watch a baseball game, and it's the New York traveling New York. Kind of like a sideshow now, but the traveling New York Yankees. Um, oh, yeah, they mentioned something about uh, John Lithgow's uh, characters. Like, uh, he said something about, this not, not like the players back in my day. Right, and like it's the New York Yankees playing at the local ball field yeah and then there's a dust storm on their way back that's a really cool shot yeah all the imagery in this i don't i mean i uh, it's amazing you know like i can understand if people don't like the movie because of you know the story it's just not their taste or whatever but i don't think anybody can complain about the visuals in this film oh no i think this is a this is a technical masterpiece like it is a really good looking movie and when they get back to her room, there's the message being left in the dust. Oh, yeah, because the, the huge dust cloud, like, cancels the game. She forgot to open her door, or close her window. Yeah. yeah that's it. 
I don't know why open her door. That wouldn't make any sense. Well, you know, uh, she wanted. She forgot to let the dust in. <laughs> so she starts seeing from where this dust. Matthew McConaughey's character. They notice that there are these lines in the floor, and I guess he figures out they're binary through how thick they are. Like a a thick line is like one, and a skinny line yeah. is zero or something like yeah. that. And he figures out their coordinates. Right. Um, so they look up the coordinates on a map, and it leads them to where secret NASA is uh, yes. operating. And, uh, of course, uh, Murphy stows away, so his daughter right. comes with him. And we get to see who one of the characters that ends up being a huge, huge player. We get introduced to TARS, the robot, <laughs> the 2001 no, monolith. I, I may be mistaking, but weren't you a little... Like disappointed with Tars the first time you saw it, it was is a little too on the nose of a two thousand one monolith. Dude, I loved Tars. It it kind of took me out of the movie the first time I saw it. It did. I was just like, man, does it have to look like the monolith? Now here's here's a question for you. After watching the making of and hearing Nolan explain why he designed one of them designed that way, do you still think it's a a nod to two thousand one or? Do you think it's just an accidental coincidence? I don't know, man. That's a really big... Like, I don't know how you could make the film and not realize. You know what? I, that's probably exactly what happened. They were just like, you know, he was, he, was, he was on set. He's doing his thing. They're filming TARS. All of a sudden, one of the grips comes up and it's like, Hey, man, it looks just like the monolith in 2001. I don't know why this guy sounds like he's from Texas, but whatever. Okay. Grips are from Texas. Yeah, everybody knows that. Then, then, then Nolan's like... Shit, son of a bitch! Something just working against me. Wouldn't it be fucked up if Nolan was like, I, "I've never seen 2001." See what happened was <laughs> Kubrick inceptioned Christopher Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what happened here. Yeah, I thought Tars and Chase were great characters. I love the the running joke of your honesty setting and your humor setting. Um. And because it just kept thinking of 2001, the one thing I did like about it, I kept, I kept waiting for bad robots. Even when he first sees them, and uh, they're at Secret NASA, Anne Hathaway's character comes, you know, she comes in, and Matthew McConaughey's like, you know, you shouldn't use these old military units because they can go all haywire and stuff. And of course, Not that the doesn't only, the only The only crazy in this movie is from the people. So they, they, find, they find NASA... And then we get Michael Caine <laughs> to come and tell us the what plot the hell of film. is going on. Um, so you know, to cut to a cha- cut to the chase uh, a few years back, some mysterious they has placed a wormhole next to Saturn that leads to a different galaxy. Uh, if you go through the wormhole, there are th- three or four planets that might be able to support life on Earth. And they have previously sent astronauts to these planets. Yeah, so they get they get three signals that say, we're good. We can support life from this one system. They got these, these three worlds. Right. Uh, Dr. Mann has one planet, uh, Edmund, and then there's another one, Miller. Right. What they're going to do is they're going to go and they're going to get in a spaceship and check them out. This they that made this wormhole, it was also that same gravitational... Anomaly. Yeah, whatever they call it. That same thing is what brought 
Matthew McConaughey there. Right. So that leads NASA to think that they have cho- they have chosen Matthew McConaughey to lead this mission. And now this brings up something that I've heard a lot of people nitpick to death about this. And I actually never had a problem with this. Uh, some of the criticism that I've heard is that Matthew McConaughey's character just gets, it's so coincidental that he just gets thrown in this. And it's like, well, if he was such an awesome pilot, why didn't NASA search, search for him? I actually don't have a problem with that at all because I think it fits into the, it fits into the whole story like of him being brought there by this gravitational anomaly that occurs in his house. It's obvious NASA is operating in secret. Technically, we don't know how hard it would be for them to sneak out and contact anyone without breaking the secret. So, of course, from this, uh, Cooper decides to go on this mission, um, and it makes his daughter a little... She gets a little mad. Yeah, because she's looking at... There's a lot of, like, um, relativity, time relativity involved in the movie. So, just to get to Saturn, she knows her dad's going to be gone for at least two years. Yeah, the trip to Saturn is just two years. Just to get to the wormhole. Right. And then, well, at least four years, because if even if he just went to the wormhole and yeah, came back... Yeah, he's got to make it back, yeah. That's four years. So, you know, she's ten years old, so now she knows she's not going to see her dad until she's at least 14. And then he explains to her that, due to relativity... I may come back and we be the same age. And she's like, wait a minute. And she's basically looking at it as holy, you know, my dad is about to miss my entire life. This is not fair to me. Where he's looking at it as I have a chance to save my children's life. And he doesn't tell her that the world is probably going to end. He chooses not to tell her And I like the line later when he says, when you have a kid... You you learn that you can't tell them the world is ending. You have to make them feel safe. That, I mean, it's a paraphrase of the line, but it's a great, yeah. it's a good line. My daughter is 10 years old. Couldn't teach her Einstein's theories before I left. Couldn't you have told her you were going to save the world? No. When you become a parent, one thing comes really clear. And that's that you want to make sure your children feel safe. It rolls out down a ten-year-old. The world ended. Nolan is constantly dealing with themes in his films, and this one is just theme layered with theme layered with theme. Yeah, he, he's um, got a lot going on here. And there's a heavy theme about you know your children growing up, and you're missing that. And wanting it back, you know, as as a father that has to go to work, you're that's the epitome moment where he's, daddy's got to go to work, and she's like, no, I want you to stay home. And granted, he's not going to be back at six o'clock. He's going to be gone for decades, for, for a long, long time. But <laughs> it's still the theme that is later brought back. I was just wanting to bring up the theme. I was really. So I think that's Christopher Nolan's bread and butter. I think he is a thematic. Um... He's a thematic director. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I really like about him. But this brings me into one of, like, my, I think my, uh, one of my favorite sequences of the film. Probably not my favorite, but I just think it's a beautifully cut moment. He gets in the car, he's leaving, and we're hearing the countdown, and then we see the, the shuttle take off. Uh, and he even checks. 
He even lifts up the coat to check oh, yeah. and see if Murph stowed might away. have stowed away. Yeah, from where she did earlier. Now, yes. my, my, my wife saw it. She asked, do you think he would have let her go on with him? Probably not. No. I don't, I don't think they had a, a little space suit for her. A little, little miniature space suit? <gasps> the space suits in this were amazing. The production design, I really... Oh, damn. Oh. Top notch. I do think... I, I want to stop while, while you're mentioning the production design. Oh. If... <clears throat> anybody that buys the blu-ray just watch the making of this is a mind-blowing film that they they were able to pull pull this off the way they did it oh yeah man absolutely um, so much of this if anyone else was shooting this movie would have been green screen cgi you would not believe how much practical you're getting shown in this film yeah, some of the some of the stuff's really amazing. Like when they're looking out the window and you see space out there, that's actually projected onto a screen. That's not CGI yeah, window are, replacement. Yeah. I would have never thought. Oh, I thought the crazy part is the uh the spacecraft. They built a whole working ship and it's like actual scale model size it's the vehicle all of the interiors yeah. yeah and like you know the care it's the open ha- the back open so a character can be shot yeah, out right. of the back <laughs> well <laughs> they need some exteriors of this ship you know for some of the some of the shots where it's flying through space well what do they do they're like well we could build a little teeny miniature model or you know what just take the full scale one and ship it back right <laughs> ship it back and they shoot the like it's a model this full size spaceship it is insane and he, they have it and on then a gimbal made a, then made a smaller one so they could get some other shots yeah oh and we we definitely got to talk about the uh the cinematography um the guy that uh this is the cinematographer that did um let the right one in which if you haven't seen you should go right now and watch yes absolutely hey, um, this is the first podcast we've done that's not been a horror film that's true that's true. It's this is a science fiction film. So, so we yeah. should totally like now work in let the right one in and let me let me in. But hold up, hold up. Let me let me finish this thought about let's go back here to cinematography here. Um there was one thing I wanted to point out was the IMAX cameras. This is the first time that Christopher Nolan they had handheld IMAX cameras. And it's hilarious. You see him on the behind the scenes and this camera it's pretty pretty stout. He yeah, just it's throws this thing on his shoulder. At least 50 pounds. Which is really cool because it allowed them to get like really tight shots on the IMAX film inside of the the ship. Yeah, and and the ship is lit with the like the the panel lights and yeah, the, they had to work a lot of their lighting into the consoles. Like yeah, a lot of the lighting for the scenes are built into the ships, so it looks like. You're in a ship. It, it doesn't seem fake at all. Head to Saturn. Um, problems? Questions? No, I thought that was cool. It, it called back a lot of uh, 2001 imagery. You know, I really like that one shot where you see the ring, and you can see the little teeny ship. Oh, that. Even my son, my, my eight-year-old son, just loves this movie. And that was the shot that he was like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's pretty Look cool. how big Saturn is. Little teeny, little teeny dominant ship floating around. Um, I've read some people complaining about the cryo sleep. But what was wrong with the cryo sleep stuff? I, somebody was complaining online about it didn't make sense to have the water. It should be like some other, I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't see. I think that's just nitpicky stuff. Like, I was, I was Bob. Now that I think about it, well, your Bob sounds like a Bob I know. That I remember, like when uh, Inception came out, everyone was I remember people complaining about the dream uh, machine that linked their dreams together so they could have the same dream. Who cares? That's not what the movie's about. I don't. I don't want to sit here and watch a freaking tutorial yeah. on how to build a machine that won't work in real life it's like that's that's a waste of time who would want to watch that it's the same thing i don't i don't care you know i get the idea because i've seen it before in movies that yes they go in there they go to sleep it's good you know right we can move on i mean i think we've all seen enough science fiction films i mean they've been doing that since alien I'm so sure before the cryo sleep introduces an important part to the movie though after two years they wake up And there's video from video messages from home. So they get to watch like two years worth of video messages. But Murph, his daughter, still has not emailed him or messaged him. She's holding the world's longest grudge. Who a lot of people say should just be cut out of the movie. What son? (coughs) He doesn't even care about this dude, man. Like, seriously? Like, all right. He gave him his truck. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He gives him his truck. This is, this is what happens. Like Matthew McConaughey is going to leave and he's like, Oh no, Murph, Murph. I love you, Murph. No, come on. Don't make me leave like this, Murph. When he goes out to say goodbye to his son, he's like, Hey, you get my truck. Be a man. Gets in his truck, leaves. Well, I mean, at the same time, you don't know if he had a conversation with his son earlier. I mean, dude does on. not care about this kid. Obviously, his he's not as close to his son as he is with his daughter. That, dude, that is maybe like a, his that's son's an understatement. Or, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's like a robot. I don't. I don't. Know. He's adopted. But anyway, the important- we we found <laughs> we found you in the barn, bitch. <laughs> Uh, but the important thing is that he wakes up. up to, you know, a couple of messages from his son. By this point, his son is like, met a girl. And um, so his life has moved on, but Murph is still not going to message him. Yeah, now he's taking over the family they, farm. Yeah, They go through the wormhole. Um, I've heard a lot of people complain that they did the... The paper explanation. Of Hold the up, you mean again? You mean Event Horizon? Yeah, where they ripped off. Yeah, dude, my my wife. We were watching it today, and she looked, she's like, "Hey, isn't that just like Event Horizon?" I was like, "Oh my god, yes, I know I right? it is." I mean, I, there's nothing you can. It was done in Event Horizon. There's got to be some class that somebody takes somewhere. It's got to be like UCLA. Well, like they do physics 101. They do the same thing if you watch like the universe. They explain it the same way. It's so. got to be. Yeah, it's got to be like how you explain. How else do you explain the concept of a wormhole? Funny you say that. They actually show you on the in the behind the scenes. They have Kip Thorne, and he's actually showing you how it got its name. And he's got an apple. And right. Like, he's yeah. got a hole in it, and he's like, "Well, this is how you get." And he's showing you the outside of the apple. So this is how you get the, to another place on the other side, or you can just go through the wormhole. Yeah. I didn't even know that's why it was called a wormhole. So there you go. Look, knowledge dropped. Now, not that we're think, scientists. We're I not did scientists think here. that. We we're both pretty interested in space stuff, though. Yeah, that yeah. technical term that we use, space stuff. Yeah, space stuff. <laughs> stuff that involves astrophysics. Stuff that involves things in outer space. And that stuff. Oh no, we are <laughs> derailing here. About the wormhole idea of being a sphere. Now that kind of caught me as as different. That was interesting. Oh yeah, I know. Um, I thought some of the shots here 
of like uh, how they're showing it um yeah distorting all the stars and everything right because in in real life if a wormhole actually existed it wouldn't just be a hole because space isn't flat it would be a sphere that you can go all the way around if you want to and then go into it oh that that, it was really cool when they go into it and hathaway's character has the uh encounter with them she gets a uh invisible man handshake yeah what it is i thought the scene was i thought it was cool yeah it could have it could have been it could have been it, this is a point where it could have like started to seriously derail, but it doesn't so much. But when they when they get in the wormhole, it starts to end. Man, when they come out of the wormhole, I don't. Man, dude, I, I started getting flashbacks of uh, Stargate. <laughs> you ever seen that? Yeah, bending space can only look like so many things. I mean, look. I mean, it was way way cooler than. I mean, you know, Stargate was ninety four, so that looked like ninety four awesome. This looks like now awesome. Right. Twenty years so- later. When they come out of the wormhole, now they are next to the giant black hole. Yeah. They, they don't really explain this ever in the movie. They may have like a line of dialogue where they throw it away, but when you're watching the movie, the only thing I was thinking of the entire time I was watching it the first time was like, why the fuck would you pick a planet next to a giant fucking black hole? That just seems that was, stupid. That was the one thing, like, in the movie, the first time we were watching it, I was like, I would go check out Edmund's planet first because it's furthest away from the black hole. It's like, hey, guys, we moved here. All right, this is awesome. Hey, guys, we also have one year to get the fuck out of here before, <laughs> before we get right. sucked up into oblivion. And, and by the way, that one year is a thousand years of Earth years, so... But they do... I was watching the behind the scenes of the uh they do explain that how it's like you know the circling of a black hole uh, doesn't necessarily unless you hit the event horizon it's not really a big deal right. apparently but they don't they don't really tell you that but they do really say that that Miller's planet is close enough to the black hole that it's distorting time this is probably my favorite part of the entire film yeah it's 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 not my favorite but it's in the top Oh man, we got so much awesome stuff going on here. This two. is top two favorites. Yeah, this is where we start getting into the the, the relativity stuff. We start getting the and time it really dilation. Really starts messing with your head, dude. Oh, so you you get down on this planet. It's all water. They go out to investigate, looking for Miller and stuff. Hey man, Miller's not out here. We get these giant waves, messes their ship up. Well, well, first, like when they get there. They think Miller is still alive. Oh, yeah. Because they recently got a signal that said she's fine. But when they land on the planet, you suddenly realize, holy crap, like, they missed, they forgot to calculate the time difference. So, what happened to Miller had only been a couple of hours. She got there, landed, a big wave killed her. But it's been years on Earth. And of course, this is where this is where it gets really crazy when they go back to the ship and they see uh, uh, what's his name, Romley. Well, because Anne, they have to stay down on the the water planet because Anne Hathaway, she doesn't get back to the ship in time. She keeps trying to get this data after Matthew McConaughey's like, get on the boat. There's a giant, not the boat, the ship. There's right, a right. giant wave coming. I'm not going to let you die. Her choice actually leads to her buddy dying. 
All right. So this is one part I th I did think that was staged really kind of weird when they're down on that water planet is so Anne Hathaway is going to get the this the data. This big waves coming. They send Case out to get her. And right. Case, Case goes real fast and Doyle just kind of stands there for a second watching her. Well, I see I I took that he was he was debating either going to get her or hauling ass back to the the rover. Well, he didn't do anything. He just kind of stands there and he's just like, "Yeah, go get her, Case." It was it was kind of weird, and of course he dies. Yeah, I mean, I just took it. It was it was that sort of if somebody doesn't go get her, she's gonna die. So deer in headlight moment. Yeah, um, and then he he gets back to the to the rover just as the hatch opens. Case throws Anne Hathaway in, and then the wave hits, and it just sucks him right under. Yeah, he's he's gone. And then it's the biggest surfing scene. I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, the ship does it does it does come over and starts going down the wave. The wave looks so massive. And of course water gets all in the engines. Yeah. So then they can't take off. So they have to stay down on the planet for Oh, and I wrote this down. One hour on the planet is equal to seven years Earth time. So when they return to Earth, I mean to the the main ship. The endurance, yeah. Which is what the is it? Twenty three years. Twenty three years passes. Has passed, and this this poor guy has been in the ship by himself. Romley has been in that Rom ship. Yeah, and you know Romley, and one of my favorite scenes in this movie is Romley sitting on the bunk. Cooper comes up to him and says, "Are you all right?" And Romley taps on the, and he says, "This is getting to me. There's a few inches of aluminum here." He's tapping on the wall of the spaceship. And he's like, but past that, there's just millions and millions of miles of nothing. And you can you can just hear the real, like, anxiety in his voice. And Cooper hands him his iPhone, iPod and lets him listen to nature sounds from Earth to kind of calm down and forget that they're literally floating in this giant void of nothing. And then when they return from the water planet, Miller's planet... Romley's been there for 23 years oh, on the man. ship by himself. That is, he thought they were never coming back. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. And Hathaway's character is like, "Why didn't? Why weren't you sleeping?" He's like, "I didn't. I didn't want to sleep my whole life away." Do you see him shaking his hand? You yeah, just, you, you feel just, him, mate. He's, he's, yeah, he's mental at this point. Yeah, he's, he's then, definitely. Aged. Then the most, to me, the most heart wrenching scene in the whole movie is. Cooper goes in and starts watching 23 years of his kid's life. Dude, Matthew McConaughey acts his ass off uh, in this scene, son. He brought it. He whoa. fucking brought this shit. I mean, he, he watched. He met his grand grandkid, and then he heard that his grandkid died. And he watched his son, like, video by video, age 23 years. And then it ends with Murph sending her first video because that's the day that she turned the age he was when he left when he left earth yep and McConaughey just the way he emoted that emotion man he's destroyed no dry eye in the house in my opinion we get the cut to where we get to uh Jessica Chastain now 
Yeah, the older because at this point in the movie, it starts intercutting with what's happening on Earth. Yeah, and we see on Earth that Jessica Chastain's character is now with Michael Caine at NASA, and they're trying to solve the problem of gravity because Plan A is to what the whole the whole plan is to get everybody off. They're building this big space station, and they're trying to get everybody off. How to create something with enough lift to get people the everyone off on this base station yeah they can't get everyone off until they solve whatever this equation is that solves gravity i don't know why they keep saying it like that that was confused me i'm like what solve the problem of gravity it was really weirdly worded but anyway so there, i, I see that it doesn't, it doesn't bother me it's like okay there's some scientific thing that has something to do with gravity that they have to solve to get the ship up yeah so they need to get the ship up and then like their plan b is that if all if that doesn't work it's okay because they brought some space babies with them frozen fertilized eggs all right there you go so they have they have space babies with them um and they'll just they'll just repopulate and that way they'll have the species to continue this is where we get to probably my least favorite scene in the movie we get the part where they're Dr. trying Man. To, they're trying to decide between Edmund and Dr. Man's and see, planet. I, 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 we disagree on this cuz I don't mind this scene. We get Anne Hathaway's speech about love. You're a scientist, Brand. So listen to me. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet. This was not, I have some problems with the dialogue here, man. I thought this was really very in-your-face... It kind of comes I, out of left field see, for me I, a little it, bit. I it doesn't bother me at all, and I mean, even you know, watching it last night, um, Cooper's being really cold. I think he makes the decision to go to Man's Planet just to piss her off, just to hurt her after after what she did on the Water Planet. And I think you know she's making uh, she's making this love speech not only because. Yes, she had a relationship with this guy Edmonds that we never meet. But I think she's trying to connect with him. Like, you love your daughter. Let me... I love this guy. Don't you understand this? And he just... To me, it's, it's a lot about, a lot about his character in this scene. Because he tells Romley, Oh, did you know that they were dating? And then Romley calmly asks, Does this have anything to do with your decision? And she says, No. And then she eventually admits maybe. Which, if you listen to what she is saying, the data is saying Edmonds has better data. So even whether or not she has a relationship with him or not, they should have went to Edmonds' planet. I hear what you're saying. I think my, 
I know what your problem is with it. <sighs> yeah. You want it to be this sterile science fiction movie. Well, it's not only that. Here's the problem. It neuters Anne Hathaway's character. Like, a doc- or she plays she plays Dr. Bran, and she was a capable character. She was, a- And now it's just like, they're making her like, I just want to go to this planet and raise babies with Edmund. No, see, I, I disagree. I think... They're treating her like... <sighs> I think she presents... She's like a crazy woman. That's how they're she, treating her. She presents she just cares the about data. Kids. I think she presents the data that Edmonds has a better planet. Cooper cuts her off and says, no, you just want to go there because you're in love with this guy. And she admits that. And then that hurts her. that Because she knows now that he just doesn't trust her. And I don't yeah. think her character is discredited because in the following scene... She she trumps him. She she basically tells him, "You better have made the right choice, because if you haven't, and we don't have enough fuel to get back to Earth, you're never going to see your kids again." But I think when she says that, though, she's doing it to like hurt him. She's not doing it because she's now capable. I think she's doing that because she's mad at him, well, and I she mean, says I, that angrily at him. It's not like she's saying it. I feel like her character gets redemption. I, I don't see that it's neutered for the rest of the uh, It's not my favorite part. So, yeah, we get this. We get the love speech. Let's just we'll, let's move on. Let's move on. I like how, like, Matthew McConaughey's messages are like, you know, it's very heartbreaking, all that stuff. Then when we see, like, Anne Hathaway listening to her uh, messages, it's just Michael Caine being like, hey, hold up. I'm going to read this poem. <laughs> well, see, I, I thought that played into her her actual like earning for Edmund because I imagine her father was uh Michael Caine's her dad yeah Um, Michael Caine is her dad he comes across like he was probably a very sterile dad like he didn't show a lot of affection so if Edmund's was the first male to ever show her a lot of affection that probably meant a lot to her but I did thought I did think that that was that was a pretty funny scene because she does he starts reading that poem and she kind of just looks over at the screen like again yeah and he does read this poem a lot this is his his go-to it's like four or five times he's reading this one small into the night or whatever he's i forget what the poem is it's a good poem though do not go gentle into that good night old age should burn and rave at close of day rage rage against the dying of the light then we find out michael Caine's a dick he's kind of on his deathbed and he's no he's not kind of he's he's, you know he is on his deathbed he's straight up dying but it's okay because Topher grace is there to save him that didn't go out that didn't go well for michael kane there Topher grace does not save him no and and he just sort of shows up plays his doctor like (laughs) yeah out of nowhere all of a sudden it's like hey what the fuck Topher grace is here and then he's suddenly like best friends with murphy and yeah, they kind it's of like have a romantic relationship. She comes in and sees the old guy die, and he's like, hey, can I follow you around for a little while? And that's exactly what happens. Want to procreate? <laughs> so, so, yeah, Michael Caine reveals that Plan A... Yeah, Plan A was never... Getting people off Earth was never, ever in the cards. And the film hints at it during the scene. There's a scene where she's looking at the, at the formula on his chalkboard. And she says, "Wait a minute! You 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 keep trying to do this without, yeah, without considering time." And she just and she straight up says that it's it's nonsensical. And he gets mad. He says, "Are you telling me my life work is nonsense?" And he just 
Close brushes it off. it off and he's like I gotta go I gotta go talk to my daughter right I gotta go do some space chat so you kind of knew at that point that yeah he's lying but then he tells her well and, you realize something's not right right but when he tells her she gets pissed because now she thinks her dad abandoned her just straight up went okay well I'll go try to set up this colony and my daughter can stay there and die I'm leaving you for Anne Hathaway on this other planet we're gonna go have space babies later Earth 2 Earth so two. she messages out, did you know about this? And that's how they find out that Michael Keat, Michael Caine was lying. By this point, they've landed on Dr. Man's planet. It's like this weird ice planet. Hey, um, guess what? Surprise, Dr. Man. It's Matt Damon. What the fuck? He's in this movie. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people complain about... <laughs> Casting Matt Damon as Dr. Man and him sh- suddenly showing up at this movie. I didn't have a problem with it, but it was like, oh, fuck, that's Matt. What the hell is Jason Bourne doing here? Somebody need to get I, whacked? I, I mean, I will grant, yeah, granted, like, watching the movie, it took me a couple seconds. I'm like, is that Matt Damon? Yeah, well, the first time you ever see him, you, you see he starts crying. You're like, Jason Bourne doesn't cry. <laughs> what the hell? You better man it up. Go get yourself a sniper rifle and kill some bad terrorists. He's will hunting again. <laughs> <laughs> he's a smart boy that's what happened goodwill hunting is the prequel to right. interstellar this is what happens he took he took robin williams advice he went he got he, he went to nasa he saved us sort of well yeah he started the program he's not a nice guy he he's goes, a dick. he goes a little crazy he, he has some problems he misses a lot of humans he realizes he's going to well, die he, on this planet. Yeah, he knows that plan A is bullshit. And in his own admittance later in the film, he never thought he would die. Like, he thought he was getting the right planet. What he chooses to do is send the information that it's habitable. Yep. And then tries to kill Cooper to steal the ship to go to Edmund's planet. Well, he gets, yeah, and he gets into fisticuffs with uh, Cooper. I love that fight. They got that great dialogue where, like, Matthew McConaughey's, Cooper's got him all pinned down. He's just like, motherfucker, I got you, I got you. Right. And then Matt Damon just starts headbutting him. Right, and the glass face mask. Yeah, they can't breathe on this planet. It's mostly ammonia. Right. And it's in the air. No. No! Dr. No! Matt, there's a 50-50 chance you're going to kill yourself. Those are the best thoughts I've had in years. By this point, Cooper has found the fallen transmitter and is radioed in Diane Hathaway, who is put on her Catwoman rescue suit and is on the way to save Cooper. Romley's been trying to get information from the robot. This is one thing I don't... That blows up in his face. I have missed. Does the robot self-destruct or does matt damon say something that makes it self-destruct he didn't say anything because he doesn't get his communication piece on until i think after it blows up i think his communication was turned wasn't it turned off he took it off when when mcconaughey he he takes it off mcconaughey but like i think he he switches he either turns it off or takes it off because he doesn't want to hear mcconaughey dying yeah um and I think the explosion is what makes him turn it back on, right? Somebody said that if you listen, and I I have never heard this, but 
right before the robot blows up, you hear Matt Damon say something that's cueing the robot to blow up. Oh. No, but, I just always thought that Matt Damon had, like, if you accessed the planet data, the real planet data that this robot has collected. the robot would just blow up. That's yeah. what I thought at first. But That's when, what I thought. When I heard, when somebody told me that, I was like, well, I don't, I don't see that. No, I didn't see that at all. I just go back and look look for it. Um, yeah, I've I've never seen it. I just thought the robot was because as soon as he accesses it, and he's like, "This doesn't look right," and then it blows up. Yeah, and that's that's the end of Romley. He's yeah. gone. Um, but hey, it's okay because Tars makes it out. Tars makes it out. Oh, thank goodness. But then Matt Damon gets the ship and flies up to the. Endeavor, the main ship that they have, and that is an awesome scene. That is cool because he gets the shuttle locked onto the Endurance, but it it's not actually locked. And well, he thinks he's smart enough to do this, and they're telling him, "Don't, don't open the airlock, don't open the airlock," because Tars locked him out. Right? Because Tars is smarter. Because What's your trust uh, level <laughs> apparently less than yours. <laughs> Yeah, I know, man. That was great. Yeah, Tars has all these meters for his honesty and all this other stuff. There's a constant running gag throughout the movie. What's your humor level set at? Blah 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 blah. Eighty five. Let's knock that down to seventy. Anne Hathaway gets in the gets into the PA system. She starts talking to him, telling him not to do this, and he's like, "Look." He starts going into like his villain speech. How, how he's right. Yeah, he's for right. Doing this. He's somehow going to save people. He, well, he's basically convinced himself that he's doing the right thing, and they're trying to just say, shut the fuck up for a second. Don't open that air hatch. But what happens? He opens the air hatch. Right. And then we get a really cool scene where he gets sucked out, and like all the sound goes. And we get a little explosion, but there's no sound. Yeah. I, I thought that was cool. You know, it's very yeah, realistic. Spaghetti fight and. Yeah, a little 2001. I, like I, that. I love the scene where now, basically, now the Endeavor is spinning out of control yeah, in the orbit and it's starting to go down onto the planet. Yeah. Now that's bad because if the ship blows up, they're just, they're dead. Yeah, because they can't go anywhere on the shuttle. It doesn't have enough so, fuel. Matthew McConaughey top guns it and has to match the spin of the Endeavor to oh. dock. Dude, Dude, that this is, is a cool a sequence. Tense sequence. That is. That's probably. It's got one of my favorite lines in the movie. Um, no, not that line. Not you're not. You, please don't. don't yes. Uh, no. Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. I love that line. That is total movie entertainment line right there. All right, all right. It's necessary. All right, all right. Ah, I love it. <sighs> that, that is the kind of moment where you just want to clap. Yeah, fucking do it. Matthew McConaughey does deliver that line well. I'll give him that. I'll give him that. Yeah, so they dock. It, it is a really cool sequence. And I, we have to point out, we haven't even talked about um, Hans Zimmer yet, but his score here is really awesome. I thought the, the score organs, in this movie was amazing. Yeah, and when they're on that other planet, we were talking about the time dilation with the giant wave. When they're on that planet, they have that like metronome, like it's the clock ticking yeah. in the music in the background. I really like that docking sequence. That is oh, really that is good. Just, that that is just, it's beautiful music, but at the same time, it's tense, man. And and what you know what I found interesting is. The way Nolan and him work is different than the way a normal composer would work. 
Nolan apparently didn't even tell him it was a science fiction movie. He just goes to him and says, I want you to write a theme about being a father. Yeah, about a father and a son. And it wasn't until after Zimmer had written a bunch of music that he then says, okay, well, it's about a father and a daughter and it's a space epic. Yeah, yeah, I was really impressed. And they, uh, the guy that's playing the organ, I did not know organs were so insanely complicated. I didn't either. But what, Man. the docking scene, like, this is a big action moment. Yeah. And what makes it just, the score just sort of stands out as amazing is that it, it adds a beauty to it. There's tension in the music. There's, there's a level of rising worry. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like that uh, but if the Alfred close... Hitchcock, the the psycho shower scene music, where it's just got this unrelenting buildness. It's really just yeah. because it blares up really quick when they start spinning out of control. Yeah. Oh man, I mean, really like this part. Yeah, if you close your eyes and just listen to the music, it's very, it's beautiful music. And this is where this is where the movie starts. Starts getting a little bit off rails a little bit from here on out to me. And we don't want to tell you about the ending. You need to see it. So catch you next time on. Ah, whatever, man. We get back on the Endurance. We're on the Endurance. Everything's somewhat fine. They have, still have space babies. They got to figure out a way. They're going to send Anna Hathaway over to Edmund's planet. So him and Tars both are shot into the black hole. Yep. They go into the black hole and we get some kind of crazy... Well, stuff flying at the ship. Yeah, and then he ejects from the ship. He ejects. But he goes into a tesseract. He does. And now, this is now cool. Now explain a tesseract. Well, this is so he goes into this tesseract which these not the thing from the Avengers. Yeah. It's it's this thing so these fifth dimension beings can represent time as a physical object. Time is a dimension. It it's just like left, right, up, down to us. Time can be anywhere. It it doesn't flow forward. Well, yeah, we don't really know how how these beings see time. Right. They're just representing. They form time it. for us. Yeah, they form it for him in a, in a tesseract so he can understand it. Yes. And I cannot fucking believe they built that tesseract. Yeah. Okay. They did. They built. At least a huge section of it. To me, that was the one scene that was fully CG. I, I was convinced. And then... a lot. Well, I mean, uh, there's a lot of CG. Well, there is a lot of CG, but when you see how much they built of it... But and it's insane they did How much that. McConaughey's moving around a real set. That's amazing. And M McConaughey, they're hoisting him up on wires, and they have this set yeah. suspended. Of this bedroom that's over and over and over and yeah. over. Yeah, and they have, like, lamps being... They're, like, free-floating. Yeah. The, the, the way it stretches out is very yeah. bizarre. Like, the bookcase is, like... You can see the bookcase, but then the bookcase will continue in, like, this weird stretched out... This weird stretched reality version of it. It's really, it's really hard to describe. You have to... Well, hopefully you've Just, seen the movie. Yeah, you've seen it. You know it, what it looks like. They showed all that on the behind-the-scenes, how much they, they actually built... But yeah, this is not my favorite part of the film. And this contains my favorite scene in the film. When he first realizes that each one of these go to his daughter's bedroom. And he goes to the moment where he's fixing to leave. He's about to leave. Fixing is a southern phrase for about to. Future McConaughey is watching past McConaughey. And he's screaming, don't let him leave, Merv. Don't let him leave. 
as a father, like that really, I can imagine the feeling of, you know, looking at your daughter like 30 years later and going, God, I wish I had that time back. Like that scene touched me more than anything else in the film. And of course we realize at this point is the reason he's here is to send a message back. So the ghost at the front of the movie is him. He tells himself to stay. Then he realizes what he's there to do. So he gives himself the coordinates to go to NASA. And then he gives her binary code inside of her watch. to. Wait, no, I think it's Morse code through the watch. Yeah, Morse code. Morse code. Morse code through the watch to to solve the gravity equation. And at that time on Earth, she's back in the room. She finds the watch and she, oh, there's a message in here. So she's able to save Earth. And, of course, this is intercutting back with Earth, where Casey Affleck's character that we haven't even talked, he's the grown-up version of the son. He probably shouldn't even be in the movie. Uh, He shouldn't. But uh, So, Topher Grace, he shows up with uh, grown-up Murph, Jessica Chastain's character, and they're in the house. And he's testing them out, and from all the dust and stuff, they have some kind of respiratory condition. Yeah, they're sick. And all of a sudden, he... (laughs) Casey Affleck character, the son, comes into the house and he's like, well, what is going on around here? Do we have some kind of science or medicine going on here? I'm he, a farmer and I don't believe in science. Yeah, he it. basically just is refusing to have anything to do with NASA. It's up to me. You're going to save everybody. His dad couldn't do it. Dad didn't even try. Dad just abandoned us. He left us here to die. Nobody's going with you. You gonna wait for your next kid to die? Kidnapped. Don't come back. Well, I still stand by that. He he lost the he lost the kid. There was nothing he could do about it. He doesn't believe there's any hope for any of them. He's he's basically just gonna keep growing his corn until they all die. And he believes his sister is foolish to be going to NASA all the time and trying to figure this out, which leads to like she catches the field on fire so she can steal the steal her nieces and nephews and take them to the doctor. And then that's when she finds the watch. Yep. And he tells her he screams at her, "Dad's not coming back." And she's like, "He gay sent us a message." And then there's a montage. Dad saved us. She saves the world. Yeah, she throws out her papers and goes, Eureka! And then honestly, like as much as I love the movie, like from this point on, I can take it or leave it. So the Tesseract closes because he got the message through. The fifth dimensional beings that for some reason Matthew McConaughey knows are people. He just kind of pulls this out of out of the air that he's like, they're, they're us. And Tars is yeah, like, he's what the yet. fuck are you talking about, dude? I thought you get it yet, Tars. They're not beings. They're us. What I've been doing for Murph, they're doing for me. For all of us. Cooper, people couldn't build this. No. No, not yet. One day. Not you and me. But a people. A civilization that's evolved past the four dimensions we know. As much debate as... You know, different people's had over the meaning of the Tesseract. Who put it there? I think my wife summed it up best last night. Well, I don't think it's a debate. He says it in the movie. Right. It wasn't my wife. It was my 10-year-old. She she goes, I don't care who did it. It was fun. (laughs) If you missed it, you missed it, but it was a fun movie. I would have liked... It is in the movie, though. For anybody that's out there trying to say that 
it's not in it's in the movie. He says what it is. Yeah. It's very clear who put it there. No, this see, this is a problem I have because I would have much rather have preferred it just not answer that. Just don't really? answer that question for me. I don't want to know. Like I never know why that monolith is there in two thousand one. So I don't you think it would have just been more interesting if it was just there. Yeah, I mean I'm fine with that. And of course, when the Tesseract closes, he goes back through the wormhole. He does the handshake with Anne Hathaway. Right, the handshake. That's him. Yeah, you come to find out all the they has been him the whole time. Yeah, pretty much. With the help of these fifth, fifth dimensional, dimensional beings and helpers. gravitational waves that right. they make. Uh, and he gets dumped back into Saturn. Real quick question. Now, he gets dumped back into Saturn. All this time has passed. We don't know that yet. Is that wormhole still there? They don't ever bring it up or anything. No, it has to be because they're headed because they're headed to go to Bran, Anne Hathaway's character. He steals the ship at the end to go to her. Yeah, his daughter says, "Go." She's there alone. Oh, that's what she's there taking a nap. Right. She's she's laying down for the long nap about right now. Okay, so she's already got civilized, and they're they're sending supplies to her. Is that what it's? What's going on? Probably. Oh. I see. I missed that. See, because they show Brand, uh, Brand's character again at the end, and she's just like chilling on the planet going off. Like, I thought, like, because of the, the time well, dilation. She's got the lab set up. And... Yeah, I thought because of the time dilation, when he gets there, she'll still be young and not even have the society built yet. Well, that's, that... wait, yeah, well, she lost years, too, when they went near the black hole. So, yeah, when he gets there, she's just set everything up and is laying down for the nap. Like, she's got the society thing set up. There's nobody else there, so she's going to go to sleep until everybody gets there. Wait, isn't she supposed to be, like, taking out space babies and getting space babies going? Well, she's got the lab set up. Oh, so space babies are going to grow? Right, space babies are growing, so she needs to at least take a nine-month nap. The daughter tells him, go. She's there. She's about to take the nap. You see the shot of the lab set up. The lights are on. Basically, the power's on. It's working. What else does she have to do? She's not going to sit and watch babies grow for nine months. And th- this is what I'm talking about, the whole thing feeling a little rushed at the end, too. And Cooper's character actually does get to see his daughter at the end, now played by Ellen Burstein. Murph is Ellen Burstein. She's like a hundred and something years old. Yeah, she's super fucking something. old. I don't know. It's like, She's ridiculously old. And they move her to this space station where he's at. And they have this reunion scene. And, man, it is quick. He comes in there. She's like, hey, I knew you already sent me those signals. I knew you were there for me, Daddy. Uh, now, please leave. I got to go die yeah, and be with my she, family. He hasn't been a part of it, her life since she was 10 years old. Man, dude, I felt a little robbed as an audience. I didn't. I totally got it. Like, really? She. He has not been up. She's been alive for like 80 years without him. Dude. The, the other people in the room are her family now. Man, dude, look. I'm an audience member. I don't feel like I got closure in this scene. How could Matthew McConaughey gotten closure in this he scene? He didn't. That's, uh, that's what he's robbed of. Uh, all right, touche, sir. Touche. But I wanted something though. I wanted well, a she, little. She tells him no. No father should have to watch her da- his daughter die. That's true. Now my kids are here. My grandkids are here. They're gonna be with me. You go to her. She's telling him you're forgiven. I forgive you for leaving. You don't get to be in here for me to die. Go find you a future with Brand. That's what she's giving him. All right. Well, I think I think we've exhausted everything we can talk about this film. No, we we've gone through it more 
<laughs> scene by scene than we've ever done before. I, I, well, you know, as far as overview goes, um, like I said at the beginning, this movie touched me on level I don't even know how to explain. Like, I am crazy about this movie. Uh, I realize a lot of people don't like it. A lot, of, a lot of people are kind of lukewarm with it. They don't really, you know, take it or leave it. I don't know. I don't know what it is that I don't know if it's just that I'm impressed that he pulled it off, or it was different than what I thought it was going to be. But then once I accepted what it was, I was like very happy with it. I don't think it's Nolan's best film, but it may be my favorite of Nolan's films. Wow! Wow, that is uh, that's high praise. Uh, I think my my favorite Nolan movies go in order of Memento, Dark Knight, Inception. I think those are my my three favorites. I don't think this movie is going to change that. I do think this is a very ambitious film. It looks good. I definitely have to give mad props to freaking Lee Smith, the editor on this movie. It is cut beautifully. This guy knows how to edit. But uh, I th- I think this movie technically is really well done. The effects are really good. I mean, it deserved the Academy Award that it won for uh, special effects. The sound's good. I know there were some problems with the sound mix that people had when it first came out. Uh, they were criticizing that. Um, I definitely don't think that's a problem for the Blu-ray, if you no. want to know that. Um, I think I don't know if they changed it, but on my speakers, I didn't have any problem with the sound whatsoever or hearing anybody. I thought all the dialogue was clear. I, the movie has a couple little, little problems here and there. I think we addressed those. That some of the things I feel that are not perfect about the film, but overall, having watched it three times now, I think most of the little stuff is just little nitpicky stuff. I think overall, this is a really good movie. It's also, really good to see a smart science fiction film, which we don't see a lot of these. And I also thought it was really interesting, as a fan of Nolan's, to watch his evolution. Um, Memento was an ambitious film. Oh, all his movies, I think, are ambitious. Yeah. For different reasons. But. Um, you know, Batman Begins, to The Dark Knight, you're taking that huge step. The Prestige, you hear the statement a lot in Hollywood, where you make your, your blockbuster, your money movie... And then you make your art film. What I really like about Interstellar is that I felt like Nolan said, you know what? I'm going to make an art film that is a money movie. I guess the problem is, is I hold 2001 in such high esteem. And this one, I feel like this movie riffs on that a lot. You know, we get a lot of callbacks to 2001. It definitely invokes a 2001 feeling. I don't think there's a problem with but I, homage to a film. No, I don't think no, it's not a problem. But I don't have a problem with the homages and the notes that it's. I also don't get that level of mystery. The thing with like 2001 is I I'm gonna rewatch that film over and over again, and I'm gonna see things I never saw before. I'm gonna see things in this film I've never seen. Before. You know, I did I, I missed I, on multiple viewings, but I man, it's just it's too much is explained to get that mystery element. I don't think he's going for the mystery element here. I think he. Well, not like a mystery, but just like that unconclusiveness. Like, we don't need every detail. Like, I don't need to know what those fish dimensional beings are. I don't even need to know that they're fifth dimensional beings. I, I don't care what they are. You know I what think, I mean? I, mean, I think the core here, he's going for emotion. Yeah. I think it's just kind of silly that when we, ha- when we have, like, Tars come up in a voice headset of Matthew McConaughey's, you know, he's like, yeah, they made this for... It's like, wow, this robot knows a lot. Like... You know what I mean? It's more like it's more like VO that's that a character is explaining coming out of their mouth. 
Now, granted, these are really nitpicky things. I'm making it sound like this movie is shit, and I really fucking hate it, but that's not true at all. This film is really good, and there's a lot to love here. I don't want you guys to think that I'm just shitting all over this movie. Nolan fanboys would string me up. I'm a Nolan fanboy here. Like, I mean, I've got like at least a couple Dark Knight posters lying around this house. But, uh, yeah, overall, I really enjoyed the movie. I just, I thought it was a really interesting blend of actual science, entertainment, and art. And I forget, you know, like, after time, I'll, I'll kind of forget about it and move on with... But then when I watch it, I'm just blown away every time. Like, it's just one of those, like, gems that... I, it just makes me smile. I would like to hear opinions on this one. This has been a heavily debated film. Yeah, and yeah. And since the since the beginning, I've been a pro for it. Um, it's got it's got haters and, and people that love it. I've you know I've heard lots of different different reasons people hate it. One of the main reasons I hear people hate it is that they didn't understand the ending. Um, I think the ending is explained. Yeah, the ending which, is you know, explained. Which, which which is hilarious because the explanation is what makes you not like the ending. You would rather it not be explained. This just goes to prove how you can't please everybody. Right. You can't. I would. I would like to hear, you know, if anybody's listening to this or whoever's listening to this, I would like to hear, like, what your thoughts are. Hit me up on Twitter. There you go. How do they hit you up on Twitter? At J. Edward Benson. There you go. Or just search Jeremy Benson. That'll work. All right, so that's going to be it for us tonight. If you want to get in contact with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew, and crew is spelled C-R-E-W-E at gmail.com. Our voicemail line is 323-539-8661. So we're going to change it up a little bit tonight. We are going to close out with, for your ear holes enjoyment. So we're going to play a little bit of Hans Zimmer's score for Interstellar. This is track eight, titled Mountains. <laughs> 